0: And welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan, and guess who's with me? It's
1: Mark. I am back, with and you. I'm now talking about myself in the third person. So
0: embarrassing. Uh,
1: yeah, a huge thank you, Bethan, for holding the fort for the past two weeks. I'm so grateful. You've done an amazing job.
0: Oh, it was all right. I don't. I don't love doing. You know what it's like. We like doing stuff as a as a partnership, but um, yeah. I hope you had a nice holiday. You deserved it. Oh, thank you. After all the stuff you've had going on. so Um, And I I did want to say thank you. A couple of people had left us some comments saying that I'd done a good job on my own, which was really sweet because it's weird. I don't know how solo podcasters do it. I felt like I was talking to myself for ages and it was very strange.
1: I always find it, um it's alright once you get going, but the the initial bit is just weird, because yeah, you are just talking to yourself for half an hour, and of course the episodes are always a little bit shorter, because we can't have that natural discussion that we normally have, but we would rather release an episode when the other isn't available than than delay the release, so... Yeah. But we are back together and yeah, we definitely enjoy doing it together, don't we, Beth and than Eww, On our own. <laughs> I feel physically sick now.
0: That's what he said. <laughs> uh
1: so let's that let's take a moment to thank all of our existing Patreon supporters of course, but our newest supporters who have signed up to support the show and us over the past week. So they are Beth and Go for it.
0: Lisa Thornton, Cassie Bush, Trisha, Kate Pope and Jen Ashby.
1: yeah thank you to all of you we really really appreciate your support on Patreon we've got loads of stuff over there we've just recorded our 15th episode of our Patreon exclusive podcast Crime Wave and this week we are talking about the alleged killer nurse Lucy Letby so we've had a a very detailed conversation about that Um, and we've also got our book club coming up next month and Colin Sutton the one and only is coming along to that because we are uh, reviewing his second book in the Manhunt series so i I'm really looking forward Bursing to that. For that, and it's not too late to to sign up to Patreon and um, and come along to to book club. You've got about I want to say about three weeks to read the book um, if you want to get involved in it. So uh, so yeah, just head to Patreon.com/slash/seeingredpodcast. This week's case has been suggested by Leah, and normally I make a note to say where said individual got in touch with us to make the suggestion, but I didn't, Leah, so apologies. I don't know whether it was via email, Instagram, Patreon, what, Uh, So, uh, but I'm still very grateful because I I wasn't aware of this case, Uh, so thank you for getting in touch. This week's episode then takes us to Dunstable, an historic market town in Bedfordshire. Just 30 miles north of London, Dunstable has a classic town and country vibe. It's been voted as one of the best places to live in England and it was home to the Weddell family in 2007. Gary and Sandra Weddell were a married couple in their mid-40s who lived in the town with their three young children. To the outside world, they had it all. Sandra worked part-time at the local hospital as a nurse and Gary was an inspector in a police force in London. The couple were comfortable, their mortgage was nearly paid off, and in just five years' time, Gary would be eligible to draw his pension, having completed the mandatory 30-year service with the force. Alongside Sandra's job at the local hospital, she also worked part-time as an exam invigilator at a number of schools nearby. Home was a large semi-detached house, just a stone's throw from the centre of the town. I can't remember what it was called already, um, Dunstable. And the couple had a large extended family who lived in the surrounding area. It was classic suburban family life. But we've been here before, haven't we?
0: Oh my God. Uh, it could be the start of number of our episodes, couldn't it? Like, Yeah. I don't know. It just makes you feel worried when you just have a nice, normal, happy suburban life, doesn't it? That what's going to go on?
1: Yeah, so many of our episodes start with a setup that's very similar to this. And we talk about crime rates in, in large towns and big cities, but most often crime, particularly of the nature that we're going to go on to discuss today, happens out in the suburbs, in the small towns, the market towns uh, and the villages, which is a disturbing thought because it makes you think about your next door neighbour and the normal people or the seemingly normal people that you know. So, of course, behind closed doors, all was not as it seemed. Sandra was desperately unhappy in a marriage, she'd fallen out of love with Gary and had grown to despise his controlling behaviour. Gary had a very traditional view of marriage. He believed his role was to provide for the family, to control the household finances, while Sandra's role was to cook and clean and to deal with all matters pertaining to the children. And to be fair, for a while this setup worked, but as the children got older and Sandra's confidence grew, their marriage began to crumble and Sandra had had enough. In a desperate bid for some love and affection, which she absolutely wasn't getting at home and perhaps in need of some escapism too, Sandra embarked on an affair with a married man in 2006 whom she had met while away on a school trip
0: oh naughty naughty well yes and
1: no and i'm going to come on to this in a second um so sandra confided to a close friend that her lover really understood her and made her feel like a real woman and i personally think go sandra because she was desperately unhappy gary was really controlling and i think this affair was more a way of Sandra finding herself again and rediscovering mm. who she was and what she wanted out of life. I don't think it was about having illicit sex with somebody other than her husband. I think it was just a way of of getting the love and affection that she so desperately craved and, and that was lacking in her marriage and rediscovering who she was and what she wanted out of life. And I think had she not had this affair, she might have carried on desperately unhappy in this marriage.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I totally get that. And I do appreciate that if they don't have a very love filled marriage by this point, you know, their roles had kind of worked at the beginning. But once the children were bigger, well, what's she going to do? She's she's not got little children to be looking after. She's just cooking and cleaning and nothing else. I I do get it. But I just always think it shouldn't you shouldn't have to go that far, surely, to realise you want to leave your husband.
1: I mean, I personally disagree. I think Sandra was probably quite vulnerable. I think this really was a coercively controlling domestic setup that she was a victim of. And I think somebody came along and, uh, when she was quite vulnerable and it was some escapism for her. So she, she was mm. too weak to say no. And I, I don't don't blame her for it. But I know that we probably have slightly different views on, on that, which is the whole point of us, you know, having these discussions.
0: Oh, yeah. And I it, I get her point of... I get it that she goes on this school trip and someone actually pays her attention, makes her feel like a woman rather than his living in keep. You know, is not her his cook at home and someone he expects to do what he asks and gives her money when she needs it. This person obviously saw her as an equal or a human being at the very least like that that is wonderful for her and i i can't blame her I just, I don't know.
1: No, I, I know you're not. I know you're not blaming her. So it's just, yeah, I, I do understand. And there, there would have been signs along the way before this affair that the marriage really wasn't working and Sandra could have attempted to get out of it. But that mm. is easier said than done. So I suppose we're looking at it without, from our own perspective, not from being yeah. within that marriage itself. But for me, it, it gave me real kind of Shirley Valentine vibes. I don't know if you've ever seen that film um, but it's a brilliant film. And a woman basically is in an unhappy marriage and runs off to Greece and fucks this guy in a boat and has a great time. So um, <laughs> and you kind of champion her. She's a hero of the film. And, and for me, Sandra was the hero in doing this. I think it was necessary. Um, and yeah, it didn't take long for her to realise uh, that actually, yeah, she wanted out of her marriage for good. And it wasn't really about wanting to be with her lover because as it turns out this affair was pretty much over before it had started but it had acted as a catalyst for Sandra and it had made things clear for her. So in late 2006 Sandra set about planning the exit from her marriage. With the mortgage on her £450,000 family home nearly paid off and an endowment policy due to mature imminently, Sandra knew she would be financially secure if she broke away from Gary. She also had a secured job and she knew that she would benefit from Gary's pension in five years time too and this is interesting because I remember around this time I'm not sure if there had been a change in the law but there was a lot of press about a professional footballer's wife who had successfully managed to claim half of his future earnings as part of her divorce settlement and that included his pension and it was big news at the time and I guess that might have factored into Sandra's escape plan that you know, mm. I can kind of make do for the next five years and then I'm, I'm going to go after half of his pension. And it has been said that Sandra did say this to Gary, uh, that she would go after half of his pension, which is quite a significant fact in this yeah. story.
0: Yeah, And also, um, you know, a significant factor for her, as in knowing that she could leave him, but still... Because I I assume she's not had a job all this time. It's going to be very difficult for her to get into work well, when she they was, say to her, what have you been doing? She was working. And she says, well, my husband... Oh, oh no! Of course she was, because you said before that she did do jobs. I was thinking that he'd been so controlling and just kept her at home, but no, you are right. Of I, I course, she did say that. Possibly
1: for a, I can understand why you would think that, and possibly for a time, maybe that was the case. And I actually think Sandra's confidence had grown through her work, really being surrounded mm-hmm. by colleagues and people other than her husband who who was very controlling. So. Um, I'm sure he didn't want her working and I'm sure he saw her grow and changes in her personality Mm. that he didn't like as a result of that. In late 2006, after months of planning the end of a marriage, Sandra confronted Gary and told him that she was unhappy and that she wanted a divorce. She also told a number of close friends, explaining that she wanted to move into a flat close to the family home. So her plan was to not disrupt her children's home life, they would stay in the family home with Gary but she would be close enough to visit them every day and collect them from school. And I think it is fair to say that this is a fairly unusual arrangement it that is. she's kind of proposing. Yeah. A mother leaving the family home, leaving her children with their father. But I personally think this tells us a lot about the domestic setup mm-hmm. at play. I think Sandra. And also,
0: that like he's clearly not a bad dad as well. He's, it's not like he's abusive in the family home in any way. It's. It's purely her not being happy in the marriage.
1: Yeah, yeah. And him being controlling towards her. He may have been controlling towards the children. But yeah, there's no there's no evidence that he was abusive towards the children or showed overtly controlling behaviour towards them. Because, of course, you have to have an element of control with children anyway. So I, I don't know if that went beyond the norms or not, but it may not have done. Um so yeah, I think I think it does tell us a lot that Sandra was planning on walking out of the family home. I think Sandra knew how unreasonable Gary was and she knew that the easiest and quickest way to separate from him would be for her to leave. And I think she probably feared telling Gary it was over and then Gary refusing to leave the family home or refusing to allow her allow her to take the kids. So I think it was like her thinking well this is a bit of a stopgap an arrangement Uh that would allow her to just get out of the marriage to divorce sort the finances out sell the family home and then have the children back and start again Um, it might not be it might be that they would have carried on living with dad I don't know but I, I think her priority was getting out of that marriage even if it meant leaving her children and that's how desperate she was
0: yeah no I think you've hit the nail on the head there
1: after Sandra had bravely confronted Gary with her intention to leave him, he essentially laughed in her face. He refused to believe that she was serious and said that she was probably going through the change. And I think this tells us all we need to know about Gary. Oh,
0: yeah, what an absolute prick.
1: Honestly, you know, that's such an antiquated view of a woman who has grown in terms of her confidence and and is looking to make some major changes. And I think it also shows that he had just such little respect for his wife. He point blank refuses to believe that she could be strong enough to walk away from him. And to start again, he has this view of her as being this very weak woman, I think think
0: and that arrogance of himself as well that no nobody leaves me like you're not going to leave me that's ridiculous
1: and I, I think this arrogance is what played into the actions that he would subsequently take I really do I think it was about his ego of what it would look like to his friends and family when his wife walked out on him how that would make him look inadequate so Although Gary didn't believe her intentions or that she would follow through with them, Sandra stood firm and um, Christmas 2006 was a bleak one for the family. As the news that his marriage was over started to sink in, Gary became depressed and he was prone to bursting into tears, often in front of the children. And the eldest was 13, so they had three children. I think, I want to say the youngest was possibly four or six. Um, I think they were all of school age, but only just. Um so yeah he he was very upset as news sank in and um the children were often asking what's wrong with daddy at this time um so yeah it appears he had finally accepted that his marriage was over and that there was nothing he could do about it so if you haven't already realized i think it's fair to say that gary was a control freak he ruled the house what he said went so this would have been a huge deal for him The person he exercised control over the most was now holding all of the cards. The tables had turned and Gary realised he had no control in the situation. Sandra was going to leave him and there was nothing he could do about it. The only way he would be able to stop Sandra from divorcing him, from taking half the house, half his pension, the kids, was to stop her in her tracks, to kill her. And so he set about planning the murder of his wife of 20-plus years, the mother of his three children.
0: It's just, we see this so, so often, and we talk about this all the time, like, you you have this choice, like, you're deciding to do something, where if you are caught, and he's obviously so egotistical that he thinks he's never going to be caught, but if you are caught, you're spending the rest of your life in prison. Or you could step back and let your wife go and be the, like, you know make up some lies about her to your mates if you have to be be a prick like that but why murder and it's your children's mother like oh it just i guess human nature just shouldn't shock us anymore should it but it does still sometimes make you just go why
1: so some people are just wired in such a way and if you think about a psychopath they will have a massive ego and I do think that's what was at play here. I do think Gary was scared of how it would look to the outside world that his wife had walked out on him. Um So I, I do think that was a big motivation for, for him wanting to kill her rather than allowing her to leave voluntarily. But I think there was also financial motivation here as well. He didn't want to lose half the house, half his pension. Uh, So I can understand it from that point too. And he didn't want to lose his kids. I think he had confided in friends or, you know, the very few people he eventually told about this, that he didn't want to lose his kids. Over the following weeks, and actually in the preceding months too, Gary started to create a narrative that Sandra was mentally ill. He spoke to numerous family and friends, feeding them lies about Sandra, saying that he was concerned for her welfare, that she wasn't herself, and that he was worried she might do something stupid. And he even went as far to contact her GP to ask if there was anything they could do to help Sandra.
0: Oh my God. Which is
1: so calculating, isn't it? To everybody around him, he looked like the hero the concerned husband who was worried about his wife and desperately trying to get the help she so desperately apparently needed. But of course it was all a ploy. Gary's plan was to murder Sandra and to make it appear as though she had taken her own life. The narrative he had spent months creating would add weight to this and no one would question it when she was eventually found dead at her own hands. And it's just chilling, isn't it, this? This really calculated approach that he's had. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I I do think Gary was a psychopath because to to those whose world he orbited, he was regarded as engaging, thoughtful, considerate and charismatic. But there was this other side to Gary. He was a compulsive liar, a master manipulator, a proficient gaslighter and actually a really intelligent guy. Rachel Kahn, Gary's sister-in-law, said he would often pit family and friends against each other and create barriers between people. She said, he would make you doubt yourself, your own gut instinct, and even doubt others around you. If you questioned him, he would turn it around and you would leave questioning yourself instead, which is just classic psychopathic behaviour. It's so manipulative. It's so controlling. And I have definitely encountered people like this over the years, as I'm sure we all have. I'm sure you have too, Betham.
0: Yeah, I think it is it is that intelligence. As like That's the scariest thing, is the... I think most normal people wouldn't even be able to remember all the twists and lies. I
1: think that I agree. I thought exactly the same thing. I think that Mm -hmm. intelligence is key because to... that's
0: really frustrating.
1: Yeah, and to, to... for somebody to sort of question you or your motivations around something and um, for you to be able to skillfully turn it around onto them and they end up leaving that conversation questioning themselves having been completely mm-hmm. gaslit it does take a, a high degree of intelligence to achieve that I know that because I'm incapable of doing it myself so <laughs> um, but you know he's I,
0: yeah I think we've all come across someone like this but it's It's when you're in a relationship with someone like this. I just can't imagine how terrifying that must be because you must start to wonder, am I the one that's mad?
1: And also, you must never be able to win a fucking argument or get your own way because they are just going to be able to turn it around and Mm -hmm. make you think that the opposite to what you want is the right solution. So, um, yeah, we we don't know the intricacies of of this marriage, but I, I, I dare say it was pretty torturous for Sandra. January the 30th in 2007 was a Tuesday. The day started out like any other in the Weddell household around that time. With Sandra moving ever closer to leaving Gary and ending her marriage, a dark cloud was hanging over that house. The atmosphere was tense and unhappy, but Sandra was determined to ensure the children felt settled and reassured and she made it her mission to carry on as normal around this time. She got up early that morning, got the children ready for school, and then set off for Queensbury School, where she would be working that morning. And colleagues actually described her as acting perfectly normal without any apparent signs of stress. Sandra arrived home around 11.30am. She was due to attend another school in the afternoon to help the children with their reading. When she arrived home, Gary was there. He was due to start work at 3pm that day. He would later go on to say that Sandra was distressed and crying inconsolably that morning and that she was abusive towards him, resulting in him leaving for work an hour and a half early in order to get away from her. Later that day, Gary was contacted at work by a concerned neighbour who advised him that Sandra had not collected the children from school. He returned home, but before going to his own house, he made the unusual decision to go to a neighbor's house where he asked said neighbour to accompany him to his house in order to help him look for his wife. Mm. Uh, I just can't understand this because actually the, the two men don't find anything on this occasion so I don't know what purpose this served maybe it just
0: proves that when he got home she wasn't there and she must have gone on her own and she must have done something herself and it's just proving he this is how calculating he is he's like right I need to set up my alibi when I got home she was not there but how can I prove that I didn't think of that
1: yeah I all I could think is maybe he bottled it and his intention was to get this neighbor and they discover Sandra's body together. Um, what benefit that would have had, I don't know, but maybe he just bottled it. But I think you're probably right. I think that makes much more sense because he went round to that neighbour's pretty much immediately upon arriving home, I think. Um, so yeah. yeah.
0: I do. I think it will be that. I think it will be maybe, maybe it was to help have someone else help find the body, but. Or to contaminate
1: the crime scene to set that guy up as mm-hmm. a potential suspect. I, I, don't, I think I'm overcomplicating it. I think you are right. I think it was to prove that he has arrived home before he's gone in the home. You know, uh, she's, she's not there. Um, so he mm. couldn't have possibly done it because he left her and all was good in the house when he went to work. So, yeah, as I said, the two men search the house. They don't find Sandra. Her car is in the driveway, so surely she couldn't be that far. But it was as though she'd vanished into thin air that afternoon. Now, it's not overly clear at this point. I'm not sure whether Gary reported Sandra's disappearance to the police or not. Probably not, because they don't usually investigate until someone's been missing for at least 24 hours but he must have had to sort of keep up the pretense of the concerned husband at this point, making desperate phone calls to family and friends in order to try to attempt to locate his missing wife. Either way, there was no sign of Sandra in the house, and we're now going to fast forward to the following morning. Shortly after arriving home from dropping the children off at school, Gary goes round to his next door neighbour's house, I think it was a different neighbour this time, bangs on the door and tells him that he's just found his wife dead in the garage with a cable tie around her neck. She has hung herself. you know
0: what? Maybe I was wrong, mate. Because that doesn't make sense as a narrative of, well, she's, she's come home the next day to kill herself. Doesn't make any sense.
1: It could be that I reckon you're or, right. I
0: reckon that he bottled it. But they could be. I reckon they were supposed be. to have found her the day before.
1: Yeah, because they didn't check the garage and that's where she's been found. So she was mm-hmm, there the yeah. whole time. She was there since the previous day. Um, so, we, I don't know. I think it's interesting. We'll never know. But it's an interesting discussion.
0: It is a weird one because I know that I wouldn't necessarily check the garage. Like I wouldn't. I, might, I don't know. Maybe I'd think to myself. If I was thinking to myself, I wonder where he is. But if If my other half was in our garage doing something, he'd have either the front or the back of the garage open because he'd be going in to do something that wouldn't be shut. So if it was shut, I don't even think it would cross my mind. But after our discussion earlier, I'd be looking in the loft.
1: Too fucking right, yeah. So so Sandra's body was found, the police were called, and her body was taken away for a post-mortem. The findings indicated that she had been in some kind of scuffle before she died. The pathologist noticed an abrasion on the left side of her neck and there were also fresh injuries on the knuckles on her right hand, as though she had attempted to fight somebody off. On the face of it though, this did appear to be a suicide. But of course detectives were puzzled with the manner in which Sandra had taken her life because it was just weird, she'd used a cable tie to hang herself. And detectives cross-referenced, I think all deaths where a cable tie had been used um, in, in somebody's hanging and it was found to be that every single one of those cases it turned out to be that it was a murder. So it was a very unusual way for somebody to take their life and they had no previous instances where somebody had taken their life by hanging themselves with a cable wow. tie. And I'm really sorry because I did mean to put a warning at the beginning of this episode to say that we were talking about a supposed suicide here, which this isn't. But uh, I will make sure there are notes on the show notes to to reference that. The cable tie was also pulled up backwards to Sandra's left hand side and that made the angle of the injury difficult to reconcile with a self-inflicted injury. At the scene, an apparent suicide note had been found and it had been typed on the family's computer and then printed off. But curiously, there were no fingerprints on it, including Sandra's. When the letter was analysed at the lab, it became apparent that it had been handled with rubber gloves and not the type of gloves used by forensic officers. This was somebody else with rubber Mm, gloves on.
0: that That is unusual.
1: So, of course, this was all suspicious and weird, but Gary wasn't arrested. He was treated as, quote, a significant witness, and Sandra's body was released to the family and promptly cremated. Um, And I think, I think officers were very suspicious, but they just didn't have enough evidence at this point to do anything about it, and they didn't drop it.
0: But they don't want to also do anything too quickly, because imagine if it turned out they were wrong, well, you've just hounded a grieving relative a grieving husband so yeah I think you want to just go along around this behind the scenes don't you and keep investigating but not not tip him off but and also if you're wrong at least you haven't done anything public
1: and also do you want to deprive three young children of not only their mum but also their dad now unless you're Mm -hmm. certain so yeah I I, I Mm -hmm. do understand it so, life went on for the Weddells, the children grieving for their beloved mother, a mother who had now apparently taken her own life, Gary keeping up the facade of a devastated widower. Quietly, however, as I said, police continued to investigate Sandra's death because it just did not add up to them. When they found the suicide note had been written on the morning of Sandra's murder... At a time when she was invigilating an exam at a school and Gary was the only person at home, they swooped in and arrested him and this was six months after Sandra's death. So they had been building a case in that time. Gary answered no comment to every question put to him in his initial interview. However, in subsequent interviews, he denied any involvement in his wife's death. When he was brought before Luton Magistrates Court to be formally charged it was discovered that he had strapped a cable around his leg taken from a television in the interview room in the police station and when asked what the cable was for he said I just want to go to sleep so he was planning to kill himself at this point. Gary appeared before Luton Crown Court on the 3rd and the 13th of July in 2007 when Judge John Bevan QC at that time refused bail. But not long after that, two weeks later on the 27th of July, the same judge at a different court this time granted bail after a defence psychiatrist reported that he did not pose a suicide risk. Additionally, Gary's lawyer, Daryl Ingram, said that Gary had complied with the police from start to finish and that he would be in danger as a police officer if he was held on remand. Gary's brother Geoffrey, who was himself a barrister, put up the £200,000 bond. And the decision to grant Gary bail was made in spite of strong objections from the Crown Prosecution Service, but granted it was, and Gary was now a free man, for the time being at least. There were of course strict conditions to his bail, he wasn't allowed to enter the County of Bedfordshire, he was only allowed supervised access to his three children, they weren't allowed to live with him, but the fact that he was granted bail would start a chain of events that would have truly devastating consequences, as if we haven't already seen devastation at his hands. As the CPS began to build their case against Gary, they analysed diaries diary Sandra had been keeping, in which she indicated her marriage was in trouble. It was clear that she wanted a divorce, that Gary was controlling and that he ruled the home with an iron fist. It was also clear that Sandra was not mentally unwell, as Gary had been alluding to, and that she was actually making lots of plans for the future, plans she was really excited about, and this didn't really paint a picture of a woman who was intending on taking her own life. Furthermore, a forensic linguistic examiner who examined the supposed suicide note concluded that it was highly unlikely that Sandra had written it and highly likely that Gary had. They analysed writing from both Gary and Sandra so were familiar with their individual writing styles. A few months after being granted bail, Gary was arrested for breaching the terms. He'd visited a pub in Bedfordshire with his mother and he'd also contacted Sandra's brother, which he was forbidden from doing. The judge ruled that these breaches were not significant enough to warrant remanding him into custody, however, and he was allowed to remain on bail.
0: Oh, that's so frustrating. It's so
1: frustrating when we go on to talk about what what happens in the next two months. And yeah, this decision would go on to be widely derided. Um... I think technically, that I think the judge said that the breach in terms of Gary entering the county of Bedfordshire was what they classed as a technical breach because the pub was a few yards across the border. In terms of Gary contacting his brother-in-law, I, I don't know what the justification was that that was okay. I think Gary's brother in law and sister in law were looking after the three children at this time. So maybe he sort of said it was to do with arranging access to the children.
0: I just get, I just think if there's, there's rules and you're on bail. Just follow, follow the fucking the rules. rules.
1: You're so lucky. They're not, it's to not get that bail. difficult. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Go to a different fucking pub then. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and again, it's just arrogance part of this. Um, and he was, an, in- he was a, an inspector with the police, with a police force in London, North Barnet. So it would have been a busy force where they came across all sorts of stuff like murders. So he kind of knew what he was doing to a certain point, And he probably understood what how you could push boundaries of bail as well, and what you could get away with and what had to be reported and what didn't. Um, so there might have been other instances where he breached conditions, but nobody was aware of that. Because the only reason he got busted for going to that pub is, uh, weirdly, he was taking some photographs of the pub and the landlady came out and said, <laughs> why are you taking photos? She then took a photo herself, then saw his his face in the papers and went to the police. So um, that's how he got busted for that. But I'm sure he was doing other stuff that he'd gotten away with. So um, very, very sadly, two months after he breached those bail conditions and wasn't recalled back to custody, and this is just 12 months after he murdered his wife, Gary went on to kill his mother-in-law. So this is Sandra's mum, Trotter Maxfield.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. According to Home Office statistics, one in nine murders and manslaughters are committed by people on bail, which is just shocking, isn't it?
0: I mean, with a statistic like that, why are they not taking the breaches more seriously? Agreed. Even putting people on bail who are potentially up for murder
1: if you can't be trusted to adhere to your bail conditions and if you can't be thankful enough that you've been granted bail for uh, after being accused of such a serious crime then then you just shouldn't be out at all even under those strict conditions so um it's believed gary had been planning to murder various members of sandra's family for around a month before he killed sandra's mum Actually she was the only casualty on his hit list but that is only because fate intervened as he made his way to Sandra's brother and sister-in-law's home meaning their lives were spared as well as countless other lives I think um, in terms of other members of of Sandra's family he had this real vendetta and although this was quite a targeted killing spree or a planned killing spree he only ever managed to kill Trotter, Maxfield, Sandra's mum For me, it just had such echoes of the Hungerford Massacre where one man is just hell-bent on causing chaos and destruction and then taking their own life, which is actually what Gary went on to do. Um, Mm. I don't know why it just reminded me of that. And that was quite different, wasn't it, the Hungerford Massacre, which you covered brilliantly.
0: Oh, thank you. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's when you've got that one person who's just got this fixation... It will kind of have those echoes and it will mirror it a little for you, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think it was that hell-bent nature that we saw mm-hmm. with... It was Michael Ryan, wasn't it? And we also mm-hmm. saw saw with... We see with Gary Weddle. Um, whilst on bail, Gary had been having secret clay pigeon shooting lessons, which is incredibly disturbing that he was able to do that. And I don't think this has ever been explicitly alluded to, but clearly this was in preparation for his evil plans. The shooting club he belonged to gave him ready access to guns, and of course, the practice ensured that he was familiar with firing a shotgun and hitting a target. And there is a lot of talk that his brother, who he was having to live with during the time that he was on bail, was aware of this and didn't tell the police, um, which he should have done, really, uh, if he was aware of it. Yeah. So it's
0: because I've I've been clay pigeon shooting, and you are taught how to load and fire a shotgun, like it's. It's not just protect, like, yes, they're clays, but the actual guns are real. So he absolutely should not have been able to do that. If
1: anything, it's just incredibly distasteful that somebody on bail for murder is able to go out and use a gun. Um, So, yeah, he was able to join that club and, uh, and, yeah, use a a shotgun, a rifle, whatever it was, to practice uh, hitting a target. So I'm, I'm going to move forward now. So on Friday the 11th of January in 2008, so I think this is about six months into his bail and just five months before he's due to stand trial for murdering Sandra, his wife, Gary Weddle visited the Cross Keys pub in Hertfordshire, just around the corner from Trotter-Maxfield's home. So Trotter, it's an unusual name, it's a German name. Trotter was Sandra's mum. Um... Gary had a pint of lager and a packet of crisps at this pub and then left carrying a all and he made his way towards Trotter's home, which was a, a big, large, million-pound detached home uh, near, near to that pub. Of course, we don't know what happened when Gary arrived at Trotter's home. Obviously, she would have known him, she would have known who he was, he was her son-in-law, but it's unlikely that she would have allowed him into her home because she was due to give evidence against him in his trial for the murder of her daughter. Maybe he let himself in through an unlocked front door or a back door. We don't know. What we do know is that Gary got into her house and shot her twice, once in the leg and once in the neck.
0: Oh, my God. And she
1: died instantly as a result of those injuries. We don't know whether there was a I struggle. Can't, I can't just
0: imagine like her turning around and realising he's in the house or like I just, oh, that makes you, he just gives you chills, doesn't it? Th-
1: this is the disturbing point of it to me. Um, yeah we don't know whether there was a struggle whether she let him in because Gary was a persuasive man and while Trotter despised him he may have been able to talk his way into her home or he might have just taken her by surprise Um, and she was shot in a room off her hallway so it's quite a large house I don't know what particular room this was but I, I think it's kind of safe to say that Gary probably went in through the front door Whether she let him in or not, maybe she did let him in and she was walking in front of him and turned into the nearest room... She then kind of turns around to sort of greet him at the doorway of that room and Gary stood there with a shotgun and maybe she had that moment of her life flash before her eyes. I think she was 70 years old. She'd lost her daughter 12 months earlier. She didn't know for definite whether Gary was responsible for her daughter's murder but she believed that he was and now here he is stood in front of her brandishing a shotgun, her Hmm. life about to come to an end and she knows now without doubt that he killed her daughter. So... her final moments would have just been absolutely appalling Um, and I I think she would have had a few moments where she was faced with a shotgun wielding Gary knowing she was about to die that this man who proclaimed his innocence in her daughter's death was actually a cold-blooded murderer and was definitely responsible and it's just it's so sad she was already a widow as I said she had lost her daughter just 12 months ago and she had grandchildren she was a grandmother had grandchildren that she you know has been deprived from watching grow up and turn into to young adults so yeah just mm. terrible the morning after he shot and killed Trotter, so the 12th of January in 2008, Gary's body was found at Broomhills Shooting Club and he had suffered shotgun head injuries and a gun was found beside his body and then Trotter's body was found later that day and I think they, the police deliberately went to her home after they discovered Gary's body. I think they realised that he, he may well have killed her. Before Gary made his way to Broomhill's shooting club the day after he'd killed Trotter, he had intended to take out other members of Sandra's family, as I alluded to earlier, starting with her brother and his wife. Gary wanted revenge on them for taking out a court order preventing his children from living with him while he was on bail. And they had taken the three children in upon Gary's arrest. And Gary had been en route to their house in Leighton Buzzard when he actually became paranoid that a police helicopter overhead was trailing him. And it wasn't. It was there on completely unrelated business, but it was enough to stop Gary in his tracks and to bring forward his end game, which was to take his own life.
0: Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine if they hadn't have been searching for a missing person or whatever they weren't doing?
1: It it is is an unbelievable twist of fate. That helicopter was there Mm -hmm. on a completely unrelated matter and it was enough. In in a paranoid state anyway, it was enough to stop Gary in his tracks and just bring forward that end game, which was for him to take his own life but he he was hell bent on taking out as many members of Sandra's family as he possibly could he always knew he was going to kill himself at the end so what did he have to lose and he was facing a trial in 5 months time for the murder of his wife and the evidence was pretty damning so uh if he didn't take his own life he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison so he'd already made that decision he was suicidal we know that and he wanted to take out her family uh before he killed himself At an inquest into the deaths of Sandra, Trotter and Gary himself the coroner said that he would consider the evidence and if appropriate that he would write to the government over the rules governing bail issues and gun licenses. Weddle did not have a gun license and he did steal that gun from the gun club but the fact that he was able to steal a gun from a gun club is, is worrying in itself. A statement was read out by police after the inquest on behalf of Sandra's family and it said It is impossible to describe the utter hurt and devastation the selfish coward has been able to cause to our family and his own children. We thank everybody who knew our unique and precious mother and sister for their continued support as we attempt to rebuild our lives and correct the injustices Sandra and Trotter and their loved ones have suffered we thank the members of the major crime unit for the professionalism with which they have carried out their duties. At this time, we would ask the media to respect our privacy and allow us to recover from these tragedies. And I just wanted to say at this point, I think think Sandra had a twin sister. I didn't make notes on this, but I think she had a twin sister who applied for custody of the children. And uh, this twin sister was living in New Zealand and applied for the children to be with her in New Zealand which I totally think was probably the right thing to remove them from the environment where such you know devastation was wrought all those memories you know
0: give them a completely fresh start away from children that would know anything about it as well so if they don't want to say anything they don't have to yeah
1: and she had, she did speak. Um, Sandra's twin sister did speak to the media very briefly in New Zealand, and sort of said, "This is this is my aim." And she actually thanked the New Zealand government for expediting the process of bringing the children over to New Zealand. So, uh, you know, it's really pleasing that, that they were able to have this new life in a completely different country um, with Sandra's twin sister as well. I hope I've got that right, but that's, I'm sure that's what I read. Well, certainly that they were moving there. I, I'm not sure if it was Sandra's twin, but I think it was. Hemel Hempstead MP Mike Penning called for the Ministry of Justice to carry out a review of guidelines given to judges on bail decisions. And he said, the more I hear about this case, the more questions there are that need to be answered. It's clear that this man should never have been released on bail in the first place. He went on to say, why are murder suspects released on bail? How did a murder suspect out on bail manage to join a clay pigeon shooting club and gain access to firearms? Why, when he breached the bail conditions the first time, was he allowed to go free again? He said, these are very serious questions and there must be an explanation and the Secretary of State for Justice should review guidelines given to judges so this never happens again. So there was an inquiry uh, after this, but basically they concluded that they wouldn't be changing anything around how they grant bail and said that they couldn't predict that uh, that Gary Weddle would go on to murder a member of Sandra's family while on bail and that they can never predict that. So um it really really sad end actually to this episode because normally we quite often see learning from mistakes such as this but I don't think there has been any learnings from this which is incredibly sad and yeah don't forget that statistic one in nine murders and manslaughters are committed by people who are bailed for other crimes usually very serious crimes as well so um yeah it's um a very very sad tale and a very disappointing ending
0: yeah I don't really have anything I just I guess I'm just kind of focus on those children at least having a new life in New Zealand with family who love them but what an absolutely horrendous story and
1: I don't I'm not sort of overly religious myself but I do like to think that Trotter is with her daughter Sandra somewhere um that they are yeah. together in whatever way that might be but yeah it's it's an incredibly sad tale so thank you for listening And uh, we'll be back with another case next week. So we'll see you then. See you then, guys.
0: Bye.